The reading today is from Acts 2, um, verses 1 to 18, and then 36 to 41. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Gosh, Parthians, Medes, Illuminites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Pergia and thank you, Egypt and other parts of Libya near Serene, visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Father God, as we come to what may be a very familiar passage, we ask that you would speak to us in a new way. Lord, would you 
Take the truth of your word and pierce our hearts. Help us to see what it is you are saying to us this morning and change us more and more into the likeness of you. We thank you, Father. Amen. We're jumping into Acts today as a one-off deviation from our series on Mark because today is Pentecost Sunday in the church calendar, 50 days after Easter. And this is, as I said, a famous passage, perhaps because um, many of us are fascinated by the events, aren't we? How many of us would love to see this sort of thing happen again? Who wouldn't want to see tongues of fire on heads? Speaking, people speaking foreign languages who have never spoken them before. I've always struggled with languages. I'd love to be able to spontaneously speak in something else. Um, and have that many people be added to the church. If we had 3,000 people, I don't know what we would do them, quite frankly. But still, it's a really remarkable story. Sometimes this has been called the birth of the church. <clears throat> but it's actually more of a reboot, as highlighted in my title. Because God birthed his church many centuries earlier. If his church is calling out people to live as his children, who are saved by grace, living by his word, and are to bless the world around them because of the goodness of God, well then it started with Abraham, didn't it? And this day of Pentecost was more of a reboot. The Old Testament people becoming the New Testament church with the descent of the Holy Spirit in a way that we've never actually seen before and, to be honest, we haven't seen since. And although these signs and wonders are... um, indeed pretty cool and remarkable, I think what actually is the most remarkable thing to see is the transformation we see in Peter. We've tracked through Mark's gospel uh, for quite a while now and we've journeyed along with Jesus and his disciples and we've seen some of the things that Peter has said and done and they have not been the most endearing, have they? Let me remind you, remember that time he tried to tell Jesus what to do and Jesus said to him, get behind me Satan. Clearly he was off the mark that day. Known as the disciple who often put his foot in his mouth, he was quick to speak and slow to listen. He offered some pretty silly suggestions at times. On the Mount of Olives, he offered to build a hut for Jesus and Elijah and Moses because he didn't know what else to say. He resorted to violence and cutting off the ear of a soldier during the arrest of Jesus. And when the heat of the moment came on during Jesus' trial, he failed in his loyalty and he famously disowned Jesus three times. Yet in this passage today, we see Peter, who was obviously not naturally endowed with wisdom, tact, thoughtful speech or wisdom, or loyalty, now boldly proclaiming the gospel with confidence, courage, wisdom and power. And it wasn't just in this passage, it was throughout the rest of his life. He actually authored several of the books of the New Testament, and he's generally considered the father of the early church. Many modern churches are named after him. We've got one in our own diocese, St. Peter's of the Rock in Rangiora. So what's happened to Peter to cause this transformation? Firstly, he was offered and accepted tremendous grace. Remember that morning on the beach when Jesus had called the disciples together to eat around a fire, breakfast together? And remember from that story, Jesus charged him three times to feed the flock, the people of God, And then Peter was empowered by the Holy Spirit, as seen here at Pentecost. So those two things happened. Peter could not do one scrap of feeding the lambs of Jesus' flock in his own strength or power or might, as can none of us. But only in the power of the Holy Spirit can we do anything that the Lord calls us to. And we see this huge outflow of power of the Holy Spirit on this passage on the day of Pentecost. And as a consequence, we see 
a changed and empowered man, taking a stand to courageously defend the gospel, speaking it boldly. Peter addresses the crowd present, and although and through the power of the Holy Spirit in him and the other disciples, 3,000 are added to their number that day. What a rate of church growth. So there are three things for us to notice, three things, uh, about this moment in history where the Holy Spirit came down in a special way. So if we look at the text again, we see, uh, firstly, there is the external nature of the power, secondly, the significance of the flame, and thirdly, the proclamation of the gospel. So first of all, they were gathered together, as we see in the text, for the ancient festival of Pentecost. And the first thing we see as we read it is they heard the sound like a blowing of a violent wind coming from heaven and filling the whole house where they were sitting. And we get a few good storms out at our place. We're quite exposed where we are. And even though we have um, double glazing and really good insulation, it's still extremely noisy. When the kids were little, they used to come and hide in our bed because of the sound of the wind was just so disconcerting for them. The sound of a violent wind in a house without actually experiencing the feeling of it must have been such a weird thing for them, but that's what they experience. It's not something that they've conjured up in their mind or imagined. This came from outside of them, something external to them, and they all heard it together. And then we see that they saw tongues of fire. It seems originally from one initial body that then separated into tongues to rest on each head. And notice, not just on the disciples, but on everyone. Slaves, working class, elite, everyone. You don't have to be ordained or special in your faith at all to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. What we should notice about these two signs, the the wind and the power and the uh, fire, is that these were uh, moves of God and they were external phenomenons that happened to them. They were outside of themselves. This was not coming from within them. It was external to them. And Tim Keller has made a very insightful observation. Well, he's made lots of insightful observations. But as I was listening to him the other day speaking about uh, our culture, our culture now believes that the problems that we face all lie outside of ourselves. Uh, Most people actually inherently believe that we ourselves are good. And within us, we have everything that it takes to solve the world's problems. These messages are everywhere. Just the other day I looked on social media and I saw a quote. If you're still looking for that one person who will change your life, take a look in the mirror. The belief is that our problems are because of external factors. What has been done to us, experiences we have had, people who we might be in relationship with, circumstances in our lives, political, cultural, traditional expectations. But intrinsically, we're actually all good on the inside. That's what the culture believes around us. Therefore, we just need to fix the things around us and we'll end up happy. I had a friend dating a guy who was not a Christian and he was a great conversationalist and we were talking about faith once in the gospel and he could not see he was in need of a saviour because he genuinely believed he was inside a good person. He said that with his own mouth. He said, I don't need saving from anyone or anything because I I know I'm good on the inside. The shift in our culture is actually telling when you look at the recent reports of counsellors and therapists. They have noticed fewer people coming in saying, I want change, can you help me? Instead, they're coming in saying, I want something else or someone else in my life to change, can you help me? It's a, that's a big shift. Counsellors and therapists have had to shift from marketing with things like, have you got problems in your life? To, have you got difficult people in your life? 
Let us help you. I wonder if the last generation who has been bombarded with self-esteem messages have just swung way too far. And we believe that we are not so much the problem, the problem is everyone else. No wonder we live in such a mess. But do you know what? We all actually have a tendency to think we are not the problem. There are many times when I've spoken with people and asked them how their relationships are going, how their marriages are going. And the first thing they often say is a problem that their spouse has that they're struggling with or that they're annoyed annoyed by. Their focus is not on their own brokenness and need of the Lord's help to become a better spouse themselves, but on their spouse's problems that are annoying them. And if that gets fixed, then I'll be a happy person. This is just another version of us thinking the problem is outside ourselves. And that problem can just be fixed. Everything will be better. But the Bible tells us something very different. We are the problem. Our human hearts are wicked and broken and fallen. We are the ones who need saving. It's not our circumstances. The problems lie within us. But the great news is that out there there is one who can fix you. That's Jesus. And that's where the real hope is. Because if the problem is with everyone else, you have no control over them. And that's a hopeless way to live, isn't it? But if the problem is with us, which as scripture says it is, then thank goodness for the grace of Jesus because he has offered it to us and has sent the Holy Spirit to change us and fix us. And this is actually tremendously hopeful. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix ourselves. We can try with all our might, but we will fail like Peter did. But Peter saw his brokenness. He saw that it wasn't his circumstances that needed fixing, but his heart. And he recognised his saviour that day on the beach so he could receive grace. And it changed him. And then when the power of the Holy Spirit came on him at Pentecost, it empowered him. The external force of God came and breathed life into him at Pentecost, bringing him to a place of power and boldness to proclaim the gospel. If we do a study on Acts, which I hope we do at some point, um, we'll see it doesn't make him foolproof. He does make some mistakes. He does stuff up. He does keep putting his foot in his mouth occasionally. But he becomes a powerful ambassador for the gospel, and he is used by God in amazing ways. None of us can do the Great Commission, spreading the word of God without the power of the Holy Spirit. So someone who is spirit-filled is someone who has recognised their brokenness, their need of an acceptance of a saviour and allowed the Holy Spirit to move in power in them. That's the first thing. That's the longest thing, so you can chill. Uh, Well, not chill. But the second thing is to notice about this move of the Holy Spirit is the external nature... uh, Sorry, the second thing to notice is the tongues of fire, which we have spoken a bit about already. I have also spoken about uh, in sermons before the fire signifying the special presence of God. I don't know if you remember that, but to recap... Remember the old, in the Old Testament, the special presence of God was often in fire, um, first in the smoking pot with Abraham, then in the burning bush with Moses, and then on Mount Sinai when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments as a guiding flame for the people at night as they journeyed through the wilderness. Fire came down from heaven in a spectacular way at Solomon's temple dedication, and there are actually plenty of other places that we read where God's fire and presence uh, comes. But the fire was often lethal, wasn't it? It was greatly feared. Here we see fire coming down to rest on the heads of all the people at Pentecost. And it wasn't lethal. It empowered them. Jesus has made it possible 
for us to be in the presence of a holy God without being in danger. The power of God, once behind the curtain in the Holy of Holies, has now burst forth through the torn curtain. And now God's presence has come to rest in each of us. Each person is now a temple of God, a person or a place where his holy presence, the Holy Spirit, can dwell. So the whole, someone who is Holy Spirit-filled is aware they need the external power of God to change them. They're also aware that they are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Their life is no longer their own for their own selfish gain, but a place where the presence of God dwells. They live for the glory of someone else. And in living like that, we actually find life's greatest fulfilment. It sounds counterintuitive to our selfish hearts, but it's true. The third thing to notice here is the proclamation of the gospel that happens. As soon as the power of the Holy Spirit came into them, they started proclaiming the gospel in every language represented to the known world. Spirit-filled people have a desire to share the good news about their saviour. One of the highlights of our time together uh, in the last almost five years, um, for me, has been that Sunday when our dear late friend Bill Hussey got up out of his wheelchair. And he came up to the front and he shared um, how he'd got the news about John and Mary. Mary had cancer. And at the news of Mary's illness, he felt compelled to go around and share the gospel. He said he'd never done it before like that, but he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit and has prompted there and then to go around and share the work of the Lord with him. Gave him a Bible. John still reads it. He told me that the other day. Um, And clearly the work of the Holy Spirit was in Bill's life. And the fruit of that obedience means that we now have John here with us in our midst. Not today, but he comes most weeks. And we are baptising him in a few weeks. Isn't that amazing? And Mary also was introduced to the Lord in the last few weeks of her life. There are others in our church family who I won't name, but who regularly share the news of the gospel with people in their lives. And that's actually fulfilling the Great Commission. I have to admit, I used to think people who were great evangelists needed to be low in EQ, emotional and social intelligence, because they didn't care what anyone thought and could therefore share the gospel with anyone. But how wrong I was. They were actually more spirit-filled, which is actually more emotionally intelligent than anyone else. They only care about the one true opinion of the one who matters, the Lord himself. This helps us to understand the conclusion that many were drawing about the disciples on that day of Pentecost, thinking they were drunk on wine. Why drunk? Well, because alcohol removes your inhibitions. You don't care what anyone thinks, and you become fearless of things and people. And if you're drunk, you say and do stupid things. You've lost touch with reality. Being filled with the Holy Spirit also removes your inhibitions. But it doesn't make you stupid. It makes you smart. You're waking up to the real reality of how life is. The real reality of the Lordship of Jesus and what what really matters in this life. You are gripped with the power of the gospel and the freedom that it means. I think too many of us are anaesthetised by the culture of this world. We're too worried about the opinions of others. And we're paralysed in a way that we never share the truth of the gospel with others. So the marks of a spirit-filled person, one who has accepted their brokenness, their need of a saviour, and accepted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. They recognise they can't fix themselves. They need the external power of the Lord to come and change them. 
They realise their lives are the new temple of the Holy Spirit. They no longer have themselves on the throne of their hearts. And thirdly, they're joyfully obsessed with the gospel. Reading it, studying it, understanding it, and sharing it with others. And what's so beautiful here is that the first time the gospel is ever proclaimed, when the Holy Spirit comes on them in power, is it is spoken in every known language at the time at once. So therefore there is no first language. It is proclaimed in every language at once. No culture or people group can lay claim to the Christian faith as their own. It is equally Chinese as it is African, as it is European, as it is American. The gospel does not squash culture. It enhances it. But that's another talk for another day. One thing we need to take from this is that we need to be careful. We don't think the only way to do church is the way we do church. There are many cultural expressions of proclaiming the gospel. And we would be so much richer as a church, as the body of Christ, if we welcomed different expressions of faith rather than judging and squashing them. The body of Christ is multicultural, multi-ethnic. And my prayer is that we don't stay a white middle-class body of people, but we are a people gathered from all different walks of life, different cultures, united as one body as we worship the Lord together. One final comment to make before I land uh, this is the awareness that we have of our experience-driven culture. Many in modern churches can overemphasize the felt experience of the Holy Spirit. And some of us have responded in a kind of a knee-jerk reaction uh, in the opposite direction. We've kind of become a bit too cerebral in our faith, and we dismiss the need for experience. The fullness of the Spirit means that we aren't just filled with head knowledge, but we're filled with heart knowledge. And in Romans 8.16, we are told that for all Christians, the Spirit comes to our hearts and bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What that means is the job of the Holy Spirit is to take, to make us realise at a deep level that we are the children of God, loved and treasured. So if you, find, if you struggle to know the Father's love, if you struggle to really believe that you are a precious son or daughter of the Lord, let's pray for more of the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. In John 14, 15 to 16, when Jesus is promising to his disciples that he's about to leave, but he's going to send the Holy Spirit to them, he says the Holy Spirit will take what they know, what Jesus has told them, said to them, and make it real in their hearts. The same thing happens with us, with the Holy Spirit. It takes what we know in our head about God, It makes it real in our heart about God. There's a brilliant illustration uh, given by Thomas Goodwin from the 17th century uh, English pastor. He watched a father and his son walking along the street. They were walking for a little while and then the father stops, picks up his child, swings him into his arms and gives him a big hug and a kiss and says he loves him. And the boy snuggles into his neck and says he loves him too. Then he puts the son down and they carry on walking. Was the boy more of a son in his father's arms than when he was walking on the street? Legally, no. Biologically, no. Objectively, no. Subjectively and experientially, yes. All the difference. In his father's arms, he experienced his father's love. He was experiencing his sonship. And we see that at Jesus' baptism. Remember when the Holy Spirit came down like a dove? 
And Jesus feels the Father's love. He's told he is the beloved. He already knew that, but he experiences it, and it sustains him for the trials of ministry ahead. And when we experience the Holy Spirit, we feel that embrace. We feel that sonship and daughtership of the Father, and it moves from up here, being a cerebral knowledge, to a heart knowledge, which steadies us. If we never allow the Holy Spirit to come into us and to make this real in our hearts, we stay at a head knowledge level and we become vulnerable to arguments and persuasive debates that persuade us away from the truth and we can easily begin to doubt the love of God and we can be um, in the fatherhood of God. We can go, oh, that's not true. It's a load of rubbish. I had a profound experience when I was at Bible college where everything I had ever believed about God in the Bible came into question. Uh, biblical theory, how to read various texts of the Bible, what was literal, what was figure of speech, the various doctrines of systematic theology, everything I had grown up with was kind of put under a spotlight. And I didn't know what was what. I felt like I'd fallen down this Alice in uh, Wonderland's rabbit hole. And I remember being so uncertain of everything. I didn't know what way was up. It was actually a really important deconstruction process for me. The Lord very graciously uh, put me back together over the coming months and years after that, and I came out stronger in my faith than ever before. But what steadied me in the midst of that disorientation, I remember sitting on my bed going, God, I don't know what way is up, but I know that you're real in my life because I've felt you. I have felt the presence of your love. I knew my Father's love for me because I had experienced the Holy Spirit. And while my head was scrambled, my heart remained steady. And one thing that I knew was certain was that the Father's love was with me. And that carried me through. Do you know, sadly, there are many who I suspect have never had cerebral head, who have never moved from um, cerebral to heart knowledge of the Holy Spirit. There were some of them there at Bible College. They were just in it for the academic exercise. And they're no longer walking with the Lord. So how do we respond today? Graham, if you and the team want to come and play. Let's just take a few moments to check our spiritual temperature. Are we like Peter? Have we seen our need for a saviour and accepted his grace? Or do we think that we can fix ourselves on our own? Just invite you to close your eyes so you don't get distracted by our children. Are we living in a way that recognises the presence of a holy God within us? He is the external force which changes us, heals us, and makes us more like himself. Are we obsessed with the gospel or are we obsessed with what the world thinks of us? The most beautiful thing of all is that we actually don't have to strive to do anything in response here or be anything We simply have to accept the wonderful grace of Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit to come as Jesus promised it would. We simply have to invite the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. And through that power, that external power, can we begin to do all the things that Jesus calls us to do. I think there are many exhausted Christians who have tried and failed and discounted themselves as failures because they've simply tried to do it all on their own strength, like Peter 
allow the Holy Spirit to come and fill you and transform you and be the one to speak boldly through you like he did to Peter. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer as I close. And I'd invite you, if you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life, which I hope actually is all of us, to open your hearts and open your hands as a posture as we pray. Father, we are broken, sinful people in need of a saviour. We thank you that you have offered us amazing grace through the death and resurrection of Jesus, the one who took on himself the consequence for our brokenness so that we may live alive in the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you didn't just give us the great commission and command us to live in the way of the Father without giving us the means to do it. Father, there are many of us who at this moment are not in a place where we feel alive in your spirit or even able to share the gospel with anyone. But you invite us to come to you and receive from you wherever we're at. Thank you that your power is what transforms us and heals us and makes us effective as your witnesses. Please come afresh on us now, Holy Spirit. Fill us with your love. Reboot us and fill us with your power. Let us feel the Father's love, our sonship, our daughtership, in your arms. Come and touch us afresh, Lord.